am, I'm, I'm, I'm to a place right now in the Lord and what he's doing at this church that I, I've seen a lot of really good things. I'm old enough to where I've seen a lot of moves of God and I've seen a lot of really good things. I don't recall seeing what God's doing here ever before in my life. And I've seen a lot of really good things, so I'm being careful when I say that. But what I mean by that is, Lee embarked on a journey some years ago thinking it was about being empowered, and clearly it was, it has been, and will continue to be. But he had something so much broader in mind, and the, the concept that we had was, was that God, through Luke, was revealing to us how Jesus discipled the disciples. And that if we would take the time, years, if we would take the time to rest in that flow, that he would do to us what he'd done with them. And we've been watching this happen now over and over and over again. But I got to tell you, it just keeps feeling like we're getting to a, a more and more depth and height at the same time to where he is just taking control. And the things that are being said from this pulpit by me and others are just, it's amazing. I, I want to just show you something here as we, as I work our way into what we're going to do today. And basically, I don't hardly have any scriptures or anything. I just want to tell you, I'm going to tell you a story. And I, I, I'm sitting in a chair, and if I had a little armchair and a fireplace behind me and I could have on the, you know, funky sweater and, you know, have everybody down, you know, I'd be telling that kind of a story because that's the story. That's what I think God wants to do today, but... But let me just show you, and, and how in keeping, I didn't even think about the day of prayer when God had me this, but, but, but God had me go to what happened at the very beginning of last year. And at the very beginning of last year, you remember, I brought to you that I felt like God told me that America had yet again slipped another notch away from God. And, and be understanding what that means, because here's what it means, clearly. God is patient and merciful to the nth degree, unbelievably, remarkably. I just want to say something. Sandy, is that you back there? I can't quite see. The lights are a little bright. Is that you with your new bride? Oh, how cool is that? What? I'm sorry. Your name, and I, I know what. I, go ahead and stand up. Yeah. You, what's your name? Oh, Siri. Your name is Siri, right? Yeah. They just got married. So, yeah. Yeah. It's lovely to have you here. We can't wait. Now that everybody sees them, you got to go up and give them a hug and love on them, okay? All right, lovely to have you guys here. Congratulations. He was very excited about you, I just want you to know. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Okay. Uh, sorry about that, but, you know, hey, God. Uh, but, but what he did was is he said that America had yet again slipped down a notch, and this is that Romans 1 idea where God has enormous patience and mercy on us. But at some point in time, it's good for us. That he would let us slip, meaning that we would experience more the consequences of our actions than we are currently. In other words, we're able to behave a certain way. You know, the old saying is, what you sow is what you reap. That's not an old saying, that's a biblical saying. And it is true, but thank God it's not true the way we think of it. Because we think every little thing we do, we should get something back in return. And we're going to talk about that next week. That's actually an incredibly sinful thing. It's not God. God, God is, we sow so much that God doesn't cause us to reap for. But there is this thing, ultimately, where God in his mercy is saying, I want you to know the consequences of your behavior for real, 
in hopes that you would find repentance. Watch this. When we make a choice to walk away from God, to push him away, as it talks in Romans, when we make a choice to do that, you have to understand, when, we first, when he first let the thing, lets it drop, we actually feel good about it. Because we think to ourselves, I'm getting what I want. It feels good. Just like it did with the Israelites when they went down to Egypt. And they, were, they, they went down to Egypt because they were escaping a famine in the land which God gave them. And so it was fine. God saved them through Egypt. But here's the question. After the famine ended, what were they still doing there? Because what they did was they were given very good lands. And they went, well, this is a better place than that place God had for us. And in that moment, right there, God was teaching every person for the rest of mankind something that's true, which is when you get what you want, at first it feels good, pleasurable. We all know this. It's what you wanted, you get it, you're happy. But then, after a season, you find out it was bondage. You end up as a slave to it. Anybody know that part of the story too? Right? You end up in bondage to a thing. And so what God does is he lets us fall down a notch because he's, he's waiting, he's hoping that what we will do is we'll come to recognize, oh my gosh, how did we get here? And we'll cry out in repentance as John did this morning. And that he will come and heal our land and bring us back into a place of relationship with him, of what it really is to be with him. See it? So that's what God does. And that's what God said last year. And if you remember, the entire year, I was saying that, and I have to say, if you were to record, just go to almost any dimension, financial, moral, cultural, social, think about the things that have happened in the last year. We've had court decisions that have changed the dynamic of how things work in this country regarding marriage and so on, that have been being toyed with for years and years and years, but it has changed pell-mell, and, and now that happened a few months ago. And now we're on to bathrooms. I mean, you may, you may think that it's good to on the bathroom. I'm not, what I'm talking about is, is clearly something has hugely changed. In every dimension, we have this thing, the security, the way that the world is right now. It's not safer. And I'm not, this isn't a political statement about Obama and all that kind of stuff. This is just simply saying the world is incredibly, anyway, you get the point? It really has been a year that has been interesting for America. Interesting is, is an interesting word, right? A euphemism. It's been a, it's been a year of radical change, right? So, at the end of that year, think about what he did. At the beginning of this year, here's what he did. Because here's what happens. When the whole culture slips a level, Christians do too. We get swept up in the zeitgeist of it. And we end up compromising in ways that we're not even aware of. And God has to show us that we're in there too. The ways that he did that, at the very beginning of the year, what he was doing was he was saying, how do you get out of that? If you're slipping and sliding down the slippery slope with the rest of culture, how do you get out of that? And remember what he said at the beginning of the year? What was it? Can anybody say it? That's been our theme up until Easter. Simple obedience. I have to say, in all the things we've ever done here as a church, I like that section of time probably the most. And the reason why is it was such a ref so refreshing. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't deep. It wasn't, you know, it was so simple. Just simply obey him. Just simply obey him. But now watch what he did as he's pulling us. 
As people were trying to simply obey him, they discovered something. And a whole lot of things that God says, I'm in. And then there's some other things that God says, and I'm not so in. <laughs> because I've got this problem. And we've been talking about it now since Easter. And the problem is, as we've been taught, this elephant thing, right? There is this, the, the, the reason is what's on top. Our consciousness is what's on top. Our subconscious is the elephant. See the sizing difference? And who's actually driving most of the time? Right? So the point is, is what we looked at was, is that there's this huge, it's happening inside of us, which is way before we ever get our thoughts to it. It's the reasons why we initially react to anything the way that we do. When we hear something, when we say something, when we think something, when we see something, no matter what happens, we have this instantaneous reaction to it. Right? It comes from these six planks that make up that elephant. And what, they, what, the social, what the scientists have discovered is there's these six things that people do, and it's not, we're not going into it today. If you want to know more about it, listen to sermons from a few weeks ago as we've been talking about it. But the bottom line is, is what it says is this. As broken human beings, we are not balanced in those six things that God created us to respond to. We don't respond in a balanced fashion. You see that? Our wants feed our instantaneous reaction. Now, remember what we've been talking about just recently. How to change your wanter. Because what we're discovering as we try and simply obey is, there's things that aren't necessarily God. We're not talking about sinful things. You might want those too, and please, you know, just stop, right? But that's the problem. You don't just stop, do you? Because there's a part of you that still wants. And then there's other things that we don't even, we don't think of them as sin exactly, but we know that they're not necessarily God, don't we? And yet we still want them. And so our wanters are broken. They become imbalanced. And what God is trying to do is he's trying to balance them out on the right-hand side. That's a balanced thing. All of the things that God wanted you to be thinking about, considering that he wanted you responding to, reacting to, now you're balanced in your reaction, and your reaction has a fullness in it because of the balance. You see it? Right? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to move us from one side to the other. And the way that God started doing that a few weeks ago was he started talking to us about parables. And what he did was he showed us that parable, if you will do this, if you will take it seriously, if you'll work in the parable. In other words, if you won't just read it as a story and then walk on, but if you'll become a character in the story and let it affect you, what will happen is, is that at some point in time, remember right and left brain? At some point in time, you're getting the information of the story all the facts, figures, all this kind of stuff. And at some point in time, the right brain comes on top of it and tries to understand the point of it, the meaning that's in it. And when it sees that pattern, and if that pattern is God, the light goes on. Aha! Oh, my gosh. Oh, I was thinking about it this way. We see it. We see that our planks were misaligned. I was thinking about it this way, and now this has happened, and oh, my gosh, now... I see it differently, and it literally resets our planks, our wanters. See what I mean? What we want, how we react, what we think in, in an instantaneous reaction. Not our reason. It sets the more important thing. That's what he's been teaching us how to do, is how to change our wanter. So here's what we're going to do today. We've been looking at parables and seeing how parables do it. Well, I'm going to tell you essentially a parable, only this is a story of my life. I'm going to tell you a story the whole time. I just, I'm going to just tell you a story. 
Now, Julie's in it too. And I want to say right now, you're going to have to trust me because at the beginning, you're not going to like some of the things that I have to say. And I'm going to make it clear, I don't like them either. So I'm telling a story on myself. Okay? But you'll see how this unfolds. What I want to do, I'm really asking a very serious question of us right now, and this, it's this. Do you want to have all your wants be God's wants and only God's wants? Is that what you want? Because we're in church right now, and you're all sort of primed for the church thing. So everybody's their instant re reaction is yes, right? Unless you don't know the Lord, and in which case, really lovely to have you here, okay? And then you're working through it, and I hope you get to the place where you do want that. But those of us who have been Christians for a while know something. And that is that we have certain wants that we don't really want to be gone. Even though we know they're not necessarily what God wants. Is this, am I twisting around the axle so bad? But do you see it? And we have to count the cost of the tower. Remember, that's what God's been teaching us. We have to count the cost of the tower. We have to understand that, that he's going to change our wanter. And you need to want that. Now, here's why it's silly not to want that. Because if you stop wanting the thing that you know isn't really the Lord, want it right now, if you actually stop wanting that, you're not going to want it. <laughs> right? I mean, if your wants get replaced by his wants for you, well, you're not going to want that other thing, so you're not going to miss it anymore. Right? You're going to be past it. You're going to be able to move on. Isn't that good? You can lay that aside, and you don't have to, you don't have to work at it. <laughs> what instead happened was God made you new. He did something. He did something to reset your planks to where you want something quite different. And what you want is what God wants. And when you start wanting for real what God wants, down to the point to where it's your instantaneous reaction to virtually everything, when you get to that place, you can't even think or imagine the things that God has for you. They are so surpassing. They are so glorious. They are so incredible. The life that he has for us. Understand, Jesus' life was unique in all the earth, right? You do understand it's not supposed to be, though, right? You do understand that every Christian is supposed to walk like that. Conformed into his image. Do you even want that? No. Let's be, let's be honest so that God can actually do what he wants to do in us because we understand the problem. First step is to understand you got a problem. So we're going to say a prayer right now. And the prayer that we're going to say, whoever's going to pray it, I don't know who is. Oh, that's awesome. Tammy's going to. Tammy is working on our staff right now. And I just, uh, the more I get to know you, the more I love you. I, I, you know, she came to a class, and I found out she was a seminary grad, and she's got all this stuff, and she's got everything to offer, and she's just become absolutely remarkable, and she's helping us in so many ways, and it's just incredible who you are and what you do. But I'm asking you to pray for something today in a very serious, and in a, you know, right down to the heart. God, change our water. Make us to want what you want for us, okay? Let's open another church, too. Father, you, um, you give us everything. You give us our life. You give us our breath. You 
provide everything for us. And in a lot of ways, you ask not a lot in return. And yet we struggle, all of us struggle with wanting the things that you want because we think we know better. Um, just like even the garden lord who thought she knew better, she found, you know, they found out that no, they didn't. And all they had to do was trust one, one simple thing, and yet they couldn't do it. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to change the things that we want, Amen. to change our hearts, to change our desires. I pray, Lord, that you would give us um, maybe small things to start out with, to, and then uh, as we walk in obedience to you, that those things would grow. I pray um, that we would trust you. I think a lot of times it comes down, Lord, that we just don't trust you. We think you're not going to give us the good things. We think we know what's good for us, but really only you do. So, Father, help us to trust you Amen. and then to follow you, and then we'll want what you want. Amen. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through Kurt, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would prepare every single heart in this room and anyone who's watching online, anyone who's watching two months from now, that you would prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say today Amen. to us. Amen. Father, I lift up uh, St. Nicholas Catholic Church down in Gig Harbor. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that uh, that you would speak to the people who go there, that you would, um, that Jesus would be front and center, and that people would come to know you through Amen. that ministry. Um, I pray for all those who serve there, Lord, that you would open their hearts to hear from you, and that you would work through them um, in many ways, and most Thank of all, that Jesus would be glorified. Thanks. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. amen. You need to preach. Remind me of that, okay? Uh, amen? Yeah? Okay, I already told you I'm going to say some things right now, and this is really a story on me. It's not going to sound like me. It's going to sound like I'm saying something dissing on Julie. And, and let's just be really clear about something right now. Julie is a better human being than anybody else in this room, okay? No offense. I don't know anybody that knows her. They don't take offense at it, okay? Julie is who I want to be when I grow up, okay? I mean, Julie just is naturally. I want to say something. It's lucky that you have me as your pastor, not her, because Julie does the things of God so naturally that she couldn't tell you why. I do them so naturally that I can tell you how to get there. Okay? Because he has transformed me a remarkable degree, and I can tell you the road that it took for me to get there. So if you're not quite like an angel, then, all right? So like I say, you're going to, okay, well, just, just watch. Because I'm going to show you a video. I want to show you something here. And I, this is a video I literally took yesterday morning. I went downstairs, and I, I went, and I videoed her car. And I want to make something clear. How many people have ridden in Julie's car? Raise your hands. First of all, look at that right there, okay? That's what, a third or more than the congregation, okay? Now, anyone who's ever been in Julie's car knows that the video I'm about to show you is, is about, well, it's usually twice as bad as what I'm about to show you, <laughs> okay? And what I mean by that is, is whenever, anybody who's ever gotten into Julie's car to get a ride from her, you know what has to happen first. She has to clean off the passenger seat. And usually it's piled high. Okay, almost to the roof. And then there's stuff in the back. And you see this stuff. 
okay? And, and this stuff has kind of a life. It's kind of like an organism that grows and shrinks and moves and breathes. And, and then there's all that. Now I'm looking from the back of the car, in the back of the car, okay? And you can see all this stuff stacked up and everything else. And so, so all right, that's Julie's car, okay? And, and let me just say at the outset, God forbid that a full-size SUV should actually be full of something, okay? Right? I mean, everybody drives around these SUVs in Bellevue as if they're going to be four-wheeling on 8th Street. So just saying. Okay? So, but the bottom line is I want to show you, here's, here's what my car looks like. You see that? Uh, you see how the seat's actually clear? And you see in the back seat that you can get in there without a backhoe to clear out a room for you? And, and then now you see we're going to go over the top, but then again we're going to go around the back, from the back. That's what the back of my car looks like. Okay, honestly, I should probably be driving a Mini Cooper because I think everything I've got would fit in there. But I want you to understand something. That, that the depths of my anal retentiveness is so great that there's this huge armrest that they have in the car that I have and a pretty box. And I have stuff in there that I might only use once every two years. But in every, once every two years I need it. And you could ask me for the thing I only use once every two years. I could close my eyes and drive right to it, no matter where it was under or next to or whatever else. I know exactly, my mantra is everything in place and everything in its place. That is me, okay? Thank you. How many people here can relate a little bit to this? Raise your hands. It's gonna be about half the congregation. Now, I use the word anal retentive all the time and I discovered something, which is all of the older people know that word because they watch Saturday Night Live and Dan Aykroyd doing retentive chef. Remember that? And it wasn't at all about cooking. It was about the fact that he'd pull out the chicken, and then he would have to cut off one little thing of the chicken, and the whole rest of the episode was about him trying to dispose of the piece that he cut off. So he'd put it in a little plastic baggie, and he'd seal up the baggie, and then he would put it inside of another baggie just in case the other baggie broke. And by the time he was done with the skitty, it ended up being so anal retentive about trying to dispose of this properly that he ends up cutting off one of his fingers and bleeding all over everything. Okay? And it was a great skit. It taught everybody what anal retentive means. Now, anal retentive is a word that comes from Freud. And this is, it's, it's not even remotely true, as are many of things from Freud, but I've also been very complimentary about some of the things that he did, too. Uh, and, but, I, but for reasons that are different than what a lot of people use it, but not to go into that. But here's the point. Here's what Freud said about anal retentive. This is where it comes from. This is a little gross, but come on, you need to know, okay? Particularly if you're young. This is very important, you know, okay? But, but where it comes from is, is that, Freud speculated that a person that was meticulous, that had a car like that, would, would not necessarily go to the bathroom because their body told them to go to the bathroom. They would go to the bathroom when it was convenient and in their schedule to go to the bathroom. See, they would retain anally what, you get the point, anal retentive. You see what that's talking about? It's, it's, it's being, being, having, doing things on your schedule, okay? As opposed to somebody who just goes to the bathroom when they want to, heaven forbid, okay? All right, got it? So I want to say, I don't know how far on the anal retentive scale that I am. Like John said, I like to be orchestrated. I do. I, I like people to think about it, but then I like the Holy Spirit to take over. The reason why I don't use notes is because it's not that I don't make them up. I make them up in great detail, and I work on them a lot. But when I, st when I get up here to preach, I trust that the Lord is going to speak through me, and I need to abandon whatever agenda I might have had so that he can get done what he wants to get done. Okay, so I hope that that's somehow the right mix in my life and so on. But what I want to tell you is, I want you to compare Julie's car with my car and understand something. 
The old saying is opposites attract. And that's absolutely true. All the way through dating and all the way through the honeymoon. In fact, almost the definition of the end of the honeymoon is when the opposite quits attracting and starts doing something else, which is bugging you. Okay, see, people that are married are laughing, right? The honeymoon's over when the little things aren't so little anymore. The truth is they're still little, but you know all that stuff that you really like about them, all that stuff that's really awesome? We just aren't human beings for the most part that keep that stuff in mind. The squeaky wheel ends up getting the grease. And so there's this squeaky thing. Now, uh, I want to just walk you through the stages. You know, the, you've heard the stages of grief, okay? I want to walk you through the stages of the anal retentive person trying to help someone who's not. Okay? Now, now understand, now this is something you really got to get a hold of. If you're anal retentive, okay, that thing that the other person does that isn't likewise bugs you. It may not actually even affect you. I hardly ever ride in her car, and what does it matter if I have to move a few things the few times that I do? This is not affecting my life in any material fashion, for real. But it bugs me a lot, because I'm in a retentive. Understand, Julie is not, and so she doesn't care that I walk, she thinks it's funny that I live my life the way that I do. She thinks it's pretty anal retentive. But it doesn't bug her. It's live and let live in her world. Right? You want to do that? Fine, do that. I don't care. What's it bother me? I'm going to get serious here for just one second. The part where it bothers her is when that little thing has started to undermine my respect for her to a degree that I start judging her. And now it's bugging her too. Right? This is not okay now. Now both of us are bugged. We're in trouble. People get divorced over this. You hear all the time, he just couldn't put the toothbrush back in the toothbrush holder. <laughs> that seems to be a pretty loud it, You know, the funny thing about little things is, get away from them for a while. Take a trip for a week. Take a trip for a month. Be gone for a little while. You start remembering the whole picture. Right? Right until you get back together with them then. And it takes about a week before you're back down to thinking about that. Okay? Now that's just dumb, right? And we're all, we're worse and less on the anal retentive scale of things, okay? But I want to go walk through the stages of what anal retentive people do to those who aren't. Okay? And almost always in a marriage, there's one that is and one that isn't. Okay? Not every time, but a lot. And the first, the first stage is, is there's so much that's so wonderful about this person. I've, right? That's almost still honeymoon. When you, when, but it start, it's past honeymoon because it really is bugging you, but you just say, it's just, it just doesn't matter. There's so many other wonderful things, and it sort of gets over, right? But then there comes this time at which, okay, it becomes important in your mind for some stupid reason. And, and what you do now, the second stage is, is no longer to ignore or to just forget about. It's to try and help. Okay? Fatal mistake. Okay, fatal. I mean, absolutely fatal. I... I did something with Julian. This wasn't that long ago. This was probably six years ago. We've been together for 40 years. 
been with each other for 40 years. And about six years ago, Julie, just with the job that she does, there's so many things that she has to do. I mean, in so many different areas and so on. It's very hard to keep them all in one place. And I thought, you know what? I've got this really handy list system and everything else. And I actually went out and found another program that I thought would be easier for her to use because mine's pretty complicated because I'm anal retentive and I like that. But the point is, is, is I went out and I found her this nice little easy-to-use list maker that would be real simple and everything else. And, and I mean, I bet you I put six hours into setting that thing up and all, putting all of her to-dos in there and helping her to understand how to prioritize them and all this kind of stuff. And I put all of this together and everything else, and I gave it to her, happy for her, and I gave it to her. And then I just waited to see how it would magically change her life. And then, and then, a week later, I said, you know, I waited, right? Because I wanted to let it kick in a little bit. And I said, how's the list going? And she's, this is her exact words. When you get done with a task, do you have to check the little box that says you're done? That seems like a pain. Now, if you're anal retentive, Almost the whole point in life is checking the locks. <laughs> Isn't that right? Right? I mean, checking the little box, my God, you get more pleasure out of that than actually doing the chore. You had it on your list, you check the little box, it's not on your list, oh my God, this is awesome. Right? I mean, you almost measure your day by how many times you got to check the box. Right? Right there, this was a losing proposition, this was never going to happen, and I needed to enter phase three which is acceptance, okay? But the funny thing about acceptance is it isn't forgetfulness. It's just pushing down, right? It's just if this happens, I am not going to respond. Now, I need you to understand something because, again, you're, you're, hopefully you're, even if you're not in retentive, hopefully you're going through this parable with me. I'm the everyman. I'm the character you're supposed to be, Okay. And I want you to see something, because even if you don't, I need you to feel it, because I need you to know where we're going to get to, and it'll help you. So I need you to enter the story, but I need you to understand, I've been with Julie for 40 years. And for 39 and roughly 10 months of those 40 years, till about two months ago, every time that I opened the door of her car, after, I, after the honeymoon wore off, I had this thing happen to me. This Now, I had learned, I'm not stupid, I had learned how not to respond to that in any way, shape, or form. To not recoil, to not flop, <laughs> have a little gag reflex, oh, oh, okay. I had learned not to do those things because she didn't like them. So, right? But here's the funny thing about spiritual beings. We know things that we can't see. It didn't matter if I was the best poker player in the world. She knew my hand. And she knew that when I was getting into her car, she could, she could feel, despite the fact I didn't do it on my face and I didn't do it in anything else, despite the fact I gladly picked up boxes and moved them to the back seat and crushed them in there, <laughs> it didn't bother her. You see what I mean? But she, she knew that it was bothering me. And she was feeling judged by it. I didn't want to ride in her car, and she didn't want me to ride in her car. You see it? Right? Are, are we, we're tracking, right? Okay. So, 
what I want you to see is, is something happened two months ago. And the something that happened, I need to tell you a little backstory so that you can, again, go along with me in this journey, okay? So for 38 years and months and four days and three hours, okay, I was having this reaction. But then God showed me, God did something in me to where I don't have that reaction anymore at all. In fact, I have the exact opposite reaction. And the way that it happened was interesting because this is something that we've been dealing with. There's a, there's a, remember when I went on my walk and God said that discipleship was in the toilet for the American church. And so we started changing everything at this church and how we do things and why we, why we hire team builders, not pastors and, and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And why we're trying to get everybody involved in ministry real. You're actually doing something that has weight on your shoulders because that's where God's going to disciple you. That's a goal of ours to help you be discipled in the things that you're doing like that. This is what we're doing, right? Well, when, when God first told me that, the thing that happened in my heart was is that the first thing I did when I finally realized it, it took me a couple of months to pray through what God meant about discipleship, being in the toilet, what he wanted about it. And when he told me what he wanted to do, I can tell you right where I was on my walk. I can tell you the house that was there and the house that's now there and all this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, and the point is, is that right where I was, right there, when I finally realized it, when the aha happened and I went, oh my God, that's what you're asking? My first response to him was, is people won't do that. They won't work that hard. They don't want to work that hard. They have busy lives and they won't put that much time in the church and things in ministry. Now, I didn't know it, but in my heart, what I was expecting from him was some words of comfort to me. I know, but I'm going to help you, blah, blah, blah. But instead, what I got back was this pregnant silence that spoke loudly. And what it was saying was, is that's exactly the problem. And so then I went, oh, crap. This is serious, and this is bad. And the reason why it's bad, because the next thing I said was, I said, I'm not a good enough manager to manage this transition. I've run this church long enough to know that I'm not a good manager. I don't. I have good plans, but I don't follow through with them well. I, I do follow through with them. I just don't succeed at following through. Not, I don't, don't succeed in what I'm doing because I'm not a good executor. And we went out and hired, by the way, Scott, thank you still. We went out and hired JJ, and, and, and Amy has come on, and other people have come on. And we've, we've been doing so much better at execution in this church, and it shows. If you work in a ministry, you know that things are a lot better as we've gotten better at this thing. But at that point in time, I said, I'm not a good enough manager. And I him to say, well, I know that it's a rough thing. Because I told him, I said, I could lose my job over this. And I didn't care about the job, do you understand? I cared about the calling, the ministry that he had me in. And I was like, I could get released for this. I'd do a bad job and blow up the church. And everybody hates me, and I, I'm out. You know, that'd be bad. And I was expecting God to comfort me. And I got a second pregnant pause. And what I heard clearly, without him saying it, was, I'm just telling you what needs to happen, and I want people to do it. If they don't do it, it's their choice, but it's the thing that will drive them into judgment. It's the thing that will drive them away. Continue to do what they think is right and not what I'm telling them to do. See what I mean? So I said, okay. But I did one smart thing. There was a guy that had spoken at a men's retreat. His name was Dave Cole. He'd taken a company called Coinstar you may have heard of. From a $200 million company to a billion-dollar company, Redbox is one of the things that they did. And the point is, is that I didn't know Dave Cole. I'd only heard him speak, but I said, I said, he probably knows how to manage. 
and I needed a mentor in this. And so I called him up and I said, I don't know you and you don't know me, but would you let me take you to lunch and pitch something to you? And he graciously said, okay. And that was almost 10 years ago. And for every other week, we've been meeting. And it is so to your benefit that I meet with him because he stopped me from doing so many things and he showed me how to do things in a different way and so on. And I've still screwed up a lot of things, don't misunderstand. But I could have screwed up so many more. Okay, I probably would have lost the church and my job and this position and all that. But the fact is, is he's helped enormously. So here's what happens. is a couple of different times during this time that Dave and I have been doing this, I've asked him to come into the church and look at the team. Well, right now, we've got a guy that we're looking to hire, a person that we're looking to hire. We're, we, by the way, we're looking for guys because we're, we're pretty heavy on the women. We've always had a better balance, and so we're trying to keep things balanced, right? We have a lot of women on staff. I love that. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, but I do have a problem when we get fully weighted one way or the other, right? I want to keep a balance in there. So we're looking for somebody, and we're looking for certain things and so on. And so what I asked him to do is come in and talk to the whole staff, and I asked him to do two things. Number one, are we good? Is our team healthy? You know, I can't tell I'm too close to it. I'm not a good manager. I want you to talk to every single person on the team. I want, you know, I want, I want somebody outside of the church that I can come in blind, and I want them to... I want you to talk to the team and tell me how we're doing. Do we love each other? Do we respect each other? Are we good with each other? Are we a good team? When you look at it as a good manager, do we, do we look like a good team? And thankfully, he came back and he said, man, you're so much better than the last time I talked to you. You guys are really, you've really upped your game and you really are a good team. You know, you've really gelled and people really respect each other and like each other and working with each other and so on. And he said, you're really doing good. But the second thing I asked him was I said, Okay, I'm, but I want you to understand this new member's coming in, and I want you to be able to help me understand who's the right person to bring in that's going to help this team. So I did that, and that's still ongoing now. When Dave came back and briefed with me about how the, what the people said, here's what he said to me. He said, the only problem area in the whole team that I can see of any big consequence, there's always little things, you know, but he said, the only big thing is, he said, a lot of people mentioned something. He said, of all the people on your staff, by far the people that people like the most is Julie. He said, they really adore her. The team, everybody on your team adores Julie. But most of them also took the time to do something that I also was doing. And that was to say, she does some things with the building, which is her primary responsibility, that being party pastor. And... She, all these tenants and things that we do that, that, you know, we have, you guys do realize we have six different churches in here. We have, I think, seven other tenants in the fall. We will have seven other tenants that are schools and so on that are happening. We've got rooms that have two or three or four people sharing a room. You can imagine the conflicts that come from that and so on. And I, and I a long time ago, I asked Julie to come in and I asked her to do something. What I asked her to do is I said, I've seen churches bring in tenants. By the way, the reason why we bring in tenants, just real quickly, a little backstory, outreach and income. I think it's almost a sin that a building should be empty about 80 to 90% of the time, which is what most churches are. Multi-million dollar properties that are being used for nothing most of the week so that a Sunday school room is still set up when the Sunday school teacher comes back. That seems not right to me. The Sunday school teacher wanting it to be right, that's okay. We need to help that happen. 
But the fact of the matter is, is I think the building needs to be used as heavily and hard as it can. And God gave us a building on the busiest street in all of Bellevue to do exactly that with it. And we've turned this into a community center. And not only do we have all these tenants, but we have events all the time. We have the Microsoft Center. We've had the Bellevue Home School here. We've had all these various people come in. And it, it was not unusual for us to have a 1,000 people in a week walk in the doors of this church that do not know God. And that is my goal. I want to be a blessing to the community, and I want to have people in this building that don't know the Lord find out that Christians aren't what they hear about in movies and television and media. Right? Outreach. That's why we got that sign out there, and people want me to just put religious signs on it, but I put funny things on it, like bacon is the duct tape or food, and we do all kinds of things on there to create a community in the community. We've done it, and it's worked really well. Now, the second thing is income, and the thing about income is I don't believe in using tithe money for mortgages. I don't believe in using tithe money for interest or principal. I believe that interest you should never use tithe money for, and I believe that principal, you could argue it, but truthfully in the Bible, principal is paid for by offerings. You don't pay in the mortgage over time. So what we do is we take the income that we get from those tenants and we put it against the mortgage, and we pay our mortgage 100% interest in principal, 100%. In fact, we have an overage that helps take care of most, not all, but most of the other expenses that from us using the building so aggressively. Maintenance, you know, janitorial, etc. See what I'm saying? So what I did with Julie is I said, look, we're going to use this building in an incredibly aggressive way, and here's what I don't want. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of us becoming a business and having a business relationship with these people. And that's not going to communicate. I don't want to be a business. I don't want to be, a, you know, everybody having lockdown contracts where you get this room for this amount of time and this square footage and this. And if you use another room, then it costs this much money and you got to pay this and you got to do this. And, you gotta, and, everybody, and everybody's always sort of jostling and fighting and everything else. And it becomes, very, it becomes very professional, which is to say distant. And it's not relational. And I said, I want to build a community here. I want to build a community that when somebody's got a room and they could go to another room because somebody else needed it, even at the last minute. I want to build a place to where the people, the tenants inside, love each other enough that they're willing to make a fight on their own in order to help out somebody else that they also love. Can I tell you something? The racial reconciliation that we've seen by having six ethnically diverse churches in this building, many of whom have done many racist things in this building, literally going into classrooms and writing racist things against other churches that were in this building. But we fought that. We brought them together, we, we, we had that happen, and then we worked through it. And we get very, very little, if any, of that anymore. Because we're building community. We're building a family. And I came to her and I said, I need you to do something that only you can do like you can do it. I need you to build a family here. I need you to build a kind of a graciousness towards one another and an understanding that goes way beyond the professional. This is what I want. And Julie has done so brilliantly. Now, when Dave Cole came back to me, what he says is he said, everybody just thinks the world of Julie and cannot conceive of her not being the person that does the things that she does. But to almost a person, they also said, she's not terribly efficient in certain aspects of how she does it. And we could use some help to get her more efficient on these things. Well, I was the one saying that too. Now, when I heard that from Dave, the Lord struck me. And I went, what's that? 
And I spent the next four weeks praying about it. And here's what the Lord showed me about Julie. You know when you have a holiday in and you're trying to maximize the value, in this case meaning money, but we're talking, let's talk in terms of value. You know what a Holiday Inn does in order to maximize the value of their building? They, they, they have a certain rate for people that don't really care about it, and they're just going to come in. They know what the rate is. They can count on it. It's not, they don't care that they save 10, 15 bucks. And so they come in, and they take the rooms. And then they put on other websites that they've carefully worked through the algorithm of how much they should price it on on that website in order to compare to the other rooms. And they're always working that in order to get a few more people to come in, maybe a little less, but they were willing to work for it to get the little bit of savings that they get. And then they go to the next level where it's something like Priceline to where they're they're literally, algorithmically, they're changing the price all the time based on whether or not they're almost full and what it would take in order to get somebody to receive an order that they would get an extra 50 bucks where the room's really 120. You see what I'm saying? What, what I'm talking about is optimizing the revenue in the building. God started showing me something. See, if I was running this building, here's what I would do. I would lay out a careful spreadsheet, and I would run very complicated analytics inside of there. I would run, like if this person's in this room, we know that the walls, and so if they're doing music or if they're having anything loud, then that room now gets to get shut off when somebody books that room. And so we have to shut off this room. And you have to understand that that means we can't rent that room, so then we need to rent this room for a little different price. And I would be very sophisticated in how I would go about making this room. But here's the key to it. I would do it in a way is that anybody could come in and book a room. Right? Because in the end, my algorithm... My little facts and figures, my little formulas had figured out all of the variables that needed to be done. Let me tell you the variables that Julie works with. This story. I guess I can use his name. Ralph Careless. Okay, a lot of you know him. He's a wonderful guy. I love him, and he loves me, and we're great. But Ralph Carolyn came to breakfast, and Julie made omelets. And she put diced tomatoes in the omelets. And Rolf's a nice guy. He would never do this. So he just quietly, not offensively, he just picked the tomatoes out of the, as he was eating. As people will do, right? You don't like onions, so you pick the onions out, right? Ten years later, we lived in a different city. Rolf came over. Julie made omelets. Three of them had tomatoes and one didn't. My algorithms on my little spreadsheet can't account for that kind of detail. With all these churches and all these tenants and all these people that want a room, let's just take this room as an example. Here's what Julie does. When somebody wants this room, she'll go to the book, and there's a book, and it shows, and it'll show if it's booked. And she'll look and see. They'll say, you know, I'm sorry it's last minute, and, but we really need to do this, and can we possibly have the, the thing? And she'll say, well, let me check. And then she'll go and look at the book, and it's booked. Now, I wouldn't quit right there, right? I'm trying to build community. I, get, I, would go, I would look at who was there, and I would say, can they go into a different room? And I might go talk to them and that kind of thing and everything else. Here's, what, here's how Julie processes it. The first thing she does is she kind of calculates in her mind, is this a person that does things a lot last minute? Because I don't want to reward bad behavior. Right? That's smart, right? That's a nice subtlety that's hard to put into an algorithm. Who's asking and what kind of people are they? But even then, you know, you're trying to build community. 
So what she'll do is then she'll look at the person that's in here and she'll say, can they in fact go to another room? If not, then no, you can't have the room. You didn't book it. You didn't, you know, somebody else did. They need it. They got it. But what Julie will do is, is she will say, and watch this, is the person that's in the room, if they can't go to another room, do we have one? And she'll figure that out. And then she'll say, the person that's in this room, are they okay with being moved? Are they the kind of person that can handle that? Because a lot of people are. A lot of people are like Julie, adaptable in her strengths, and they can adapt. No problem. And if they are, she'll clear it with them first, but she'll move them. And nobody will care. And the person will get what they needed. And something that will bless their organization, their church, their, their school, right? But then she'll do this. She'll say, is the person that's in there somebody that doesn't like to be moved? But, th this is me, they don't want to be moved because I like my space. See? I'm in this space. I'm expecting this space. i got reasons why I like this space. Don't move me. But the fact is, if you do, I know that you did it for a good reason, so I can handle it. Is that the person that booked the room? And if they are, then she'll come to me, and she'll say, can we move you? But watch this. If she's asked me three times in a row or two times in a row, she won't ask me the fourth time because she'll know that that fourth time is the time that was my limit. You see it? That's where I would have said no, or I wouldn't have liked it to the point that it would have become more costly in the relational to me than it was for the benefit to the other person. You see what she's doing? That careful, subtle, nuanced thing that she's doing, that unbelievable thing that she's doing? Now, there's a third type of person that's just really anal retentive, and they just don't ever want to be moved, period. And here's what she'll say in her heart about that. Do I need to ask them because it's the right thing to do? Because I need them to understand what we're trying to do in this community, and they need to be owning some of this flexibility, too. You see it? Now, tell me how I can put that. You guys are smart programmers, a lot of you. How can I put that into a program that would work? Tell me how I could put that in a book in a way that somebody could come in and book their own room. Tell me how I could. But So here's what God did. God started showing me what Julie does and how she does it. And a word came into my mind. Julie optimizes. You want to know what's extraordinary about the way that Julie runs this building? The amount of things we do here and the relative lack of pain of it. I'm not saying pain. There is. People get moved and they're not happy about it or they don't clean up and they're not happy about that. Or there's stuff that happens that is friction. But the benefit to the friction level that Julie operates this building in is fully optimized point that you know how rare it is that we have a conflict that we can't resolve all the time julie finds a way to work it out to where this thing that needed everybody gets what they need and again there's some friction in that but here's what i saw if you ran the building the way that i want get to about 80 percent of what we currently do here's what i felt like god said to me i like julie's way better I like 100%. I really like the way that she's challenging people all the time. I really like the way that she's careful about how we do people. I really, that's not to say she does everything right. She doesn't, right? But I felt like God was telling me, I really like the way she runs the building. I can get a lot of work done in that building because of the way that she runs that building. 
I can do a lot of things that are extraordinary. People realize something deeper. There's a tenant that we have in this building that at one point in time got so large, the Montessori school, that they became half of our income, which was something we never wanted to have happen because what if they leave? In a normal business relationship, if they leave, half of your income goes, right? And who knows what happens? Let me show you when Julie does something, what people do. This woman came to her, I think it was three years ago. I wish she was here. I know she's setting up for a bunch of events because Julie's the party pastor. What she did was this woman running a business came to her and said, I've got a location in Redmond. I'm getting to an age where I don't want to have the stress of the two different locations. I'm going to give up my spot, but here's what I want to do. I'm not going to give it all up at once because that would throw you guys into a tiz, and I don't want to do that to you, Julie. And so what I'm going to do, even though the fact I don't want to do this, I'm going to gradually scale myself the next few years, and you can start bringing in other people. And I'm going to start moving down so that you can move other people in. I'm guessing, I added it up in my mind, I'm guessing that this tenant paid probably $200,000 over the term of this transition. That if it's a relationship, she would have just said, I don't want to do it anymore, I'm out of my lease, good luck. If she would have said good luck. In a business place, you don't say that, right? You're just out. You see what I'm saying? There's, a, there's, a, there's an optimization that is happening on ministry levels, on financial levels, on all things that I didn't see. I didn't see that. And now I want to show you what God did with that revelation about the building. And I'm not saying, by the way, I want to say something. That extra 20% that Julie optimizes, that may be too costly and too painful. And we may decide, as an organization, as a church, we may decide that there's too much cost in that and we're going to go ahead and move back down to the 80. It would sure make her life easier. You do not want to be with Julie with her phone on at night. It is ringing, it is pinging, texting all night long because of all the people that are in there talking to her about how to work things out. And she's on text almost all night, every night. And it may be that that's not the right thing to do to get that extra 20%. It has benefited us greatly up until now, but it may be a decision that we make to go ahead and scale it back and make it a little bit more predictable and a little less subtle, a little, more, a little less nuanced and not optimizing it completely, but still getting a lot of value out of it. We may in fact do that, but here's what God did with me with me and my relationship with Julie about the car. What God did was is he, put a, he, put a, he put a thing in my heart about what Julie does that I, I don't, I honest to goodness don't know of anybody else that could do what she does. That's what people say about her all the time. People say the way that you do I don't know anybody that does things the way that you do it. And that's true. And that's one of the reasons why they're just blown away by her. But now watch this. I wanna, I'm going to go through the car again, only I'm going to slow it down this time, and I'll explain to you what's in the car. We're going to parse the pieces. Now watch this. See those clothes in the seat sitting right there? Those are clothes from her closet that she gave to somebody. Clothes that she wears all the time, but somebody needed them because they had something going on. They, didn't, they needed help. And so Julie gave her those clothes, and now she's taking them back. That cooler back there has to do with a gleaning ministry that Julie does and others, many others in this church that she in Christmatics and so on. And we get tens of thousands of dollars per year of free food, yet alone give away much, much, much more than that to people that need it. Those sheets that you saw right there, they're not sheets, they're tablecloths. Did you know that Julie's our laundry service? Did you know that? Now, we're going to go to the back here, and I want to show you. See that parcel bag? You're going to see it from the back here in just one second. Okay. 
That parcel bag right there, that's, a, that's the partner in that side, or magazines of the partner that she worked with in Beverly Hills who is now old and kind of alone. He's lost everybody because he's old enough to have lost everybody. And she sends him fashion magazines in order to let him know that somebody knows he's still there and loves him. The leather swabs are somebody that somebody gave to her because her father's house, you know, their parents' house burned down. And those leather swabs are to take them back and to be able to do some things with the leather in the room and so on that Julie thought might be helpful and so on. There's, look, I want to say something. She's not perfect. You see that end bag right there? That's a Nordica ski bag that's been sitting in there for about three months. So she, we're not talking, but the reason why it's still sitting in there is because what she didn't do is what I would do. I would have driven down, so I would have taken the time to drive downstairs, get rid of that thing, take it out of my car. But here's what Julie does. The next time that she's down there, she'll take it out. But she's not going to take the time to do that now because she's optimizing, but how? People. All the time. Never things. Ever. Here's what is also in that car most of the time. Big boxes full of silver plates and fragile china. And when the women go to an event, there's silver trays with canopies on them and stacked up high. And the church doesn't own that stuff. That's our stuff. You don't, church don't buy that kind of stuff. That would be silly for a church to buy that kind of stuff. But Julie likes the church to feel like her home. And so the difference between her home and her church is non-existent. And the umbilical cord is that car. <laughs> Carrying blood back and forth. You see it? Oxygen. Life. And what she's doing is, is she's putting furniture in there. I mean, literally yesterday, she's, she goes over to our thing and puts a vase back up on top of a place where this vase is. And I was like, what are you doing? She took the vase off out of our house and brought it to an event at church because she thought it would be just perfect for this little setting that she and that people would feel more special and more cared for because she had taken the time to set it up in a way that did go above and beyond, that optimizes the person. The value. If I can do it, I'm going to do it. Do you see it? Now watch. We're talking about parables. Getting an aha. Having a thing happen to you in the story where all of a sudden it changes everything. I want to tell you that God started showing me about what Julie does to optimize this building. And all of a sudden, I started realizing that that's what Julie does to optimize everybody in her life, me included. That she's pouring herself out for people 24-7. Now watch. Oh, my gosh. Help me. A lot of crying in the church today. For 38 years, 10 months, 2 weeks, and 10 hours. Every time I opened the car door, I had to stop my reaction. Two months ago, I opened up the door of the car, and I had, saw a bunch of crap in the seat. And I went, wow. Wow. This is not... It didn't look like piles anymore to me. It looked like 
her blessing somebody. And it made me go, wow. It made me love her more. <laughs> I do a lot already. It made me respect her more. See, that thing that Satan was trying to do when he puts a false image in our minds about who God is. Come next week. Wait till you hear how God's going to build on this message. It's Mother's Day. I'm not quite sure how to tie it into Mother's Day yet, but God's good. But this thing that Satan does when he perverts our image and he starts to undermine our image of God and the real cost of what's happening there and that if you will just engage in the things of your life, Devo's being critical because you've got to hear from them daily so they can walk you through the wall so that you go through the story and you get the revelation. But when you get the revelation, your wander changes. Your reaction changes. It, you don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to work on it. When I open the door to her car, this is, is going to sound weird. I like opening the door to her car now. Because I'm going to see evidence of Julie blessing somebody. <laughs> of Julie somebody doing something incredible. Of Julie going above and beyond to bless somebody. And that's who I get to be with. Huh? You see it? God is trying to change us, guys. And he's trying to change us in the easiest way ever. <laughs> All you have to do is what we said at the very beginning on those parables. Just commit to actually working on it. Just commit to actually being in the story. Actually letting him do the, the magic, which is to say the revelation that he wants to do in you, right? God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, first of all, for me, thank you for Julie. And in fact, for every single thank you for Julie. God, thank you for showing us what you look like and the way that you optimize, that you go to extraordinary lengths, that you don't do what's comfortable, that you go all the way, and that you do the extraordinary, extraordinary. Thank you for her. Bless her. Even as she prepares special things for everybody who's doing everything today, bless her. And now in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, I ask you that you would take every person in this church and that you would start having us to engage in the parables that you are, this, that you are leading us into, that you are living our lives in right now. Let us see the stories. Let us become a participant in the journey that leads to the aha, to the revelation, to the insight that changes everything. God, in Jesus' name, you desire to make us want, to cause us to want what you want and only what you want. We want that. Say that in your heart. Say that with your lips. I want that. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, bring that to pass. Fill us with that. Overflow us with that. Reach down in front of you and grab this cup, these two cups. And take that, that lower one in which is this bread. This life that we have lived at 80% of capacity because it was comfortable. And let's, let's let God take us to another place entirely. 
In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, take this cup that we have and we now understand was broken compared to the healing and wholeness that you have. We put finger in there to recognize our brokenness. And then, God, in Jesus' name, we lift it up to you on the cross where you healed it and made us whole, gloriously whole. So, God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this cup to be made whole. Everything. Take it together. And now in Jesus' incredible name, we lift this cup in which is the life that you have for us, the life that you purchased for us right there on the cross. Everything that we need has already been done and is just waiting for us to appropriate, to enter into, to start living. The blood is the life, and the life is in the blood. God, there was a life that I was leading, and now there's a life that you have for me, and I choose yours. I count the cost of the tower. It turns out to be easy. So we take this together and say, God, your life become mine, wholly and completely and utterly, in Jesus' name.